Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is retired Brigadier General Greg Hazy. He retired out of the Pentagon. You're going to correct me if I'm wrong here, right? Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. Good. Where he worked on policy and total force integration across the Air Force, which is hard for me. So he's going to explain that to me uh, here pretty quickly. Uh, most notably here at the 133rd, he served as our wing commander from 2006 to 2013. He's also the go-to guy for all things regarding our storied history here at the Wing, where we are celebrating our 100th year of federal recognition. So, General Hazi, welcome. Thank you. It's great to Good have to you be here, here, Chief. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be fun. Um, you graduated from North Dakota State University in civil engineering, and shortly after that joined the Guard up Dur. Is that how you say it? Up Dur? Up Dur, Fargo. North, yeah, North Dakota. Sure. Okay. Yeah. What led you to a career in the military? You know that uh, there's that was a kind of a name sense that I wanted to do something to serve, and you know, dad was in the army, and uh, my uncle was in the army, and you know, I had this crazy thing to go maybe fly helicopters, and so I was actually in Army ROTC, and it was fun. We were doing rappelling, and we were doing you know all the crazy stuff you do as an army soldier. So I did two years of that, and then I was uh, being a civil engineer. I had the surveying classes behind me by then, and I went to work on the highway department that summer as an intern, and uh, I'm talking to a, an individual out there, like one of the project supervisors, and and uh, said, yeah, I think I really want to fly. Just, you know, my dad and uncle are both in the Army. I think it'd be fun uh, to go fly. I, don't, I really don't want to live in the mud and live in tents. I, I do that for fun to camp, but I don't want to do that for, like, a living or anything. And so he said, well, why are you thinking about the Army? Why don't you join the Air Guard? And that was, like, the first time I ever heard of such a thing. And he said, yeah, no, there's an air guard. We call the Happy Hooligans. And I was part of the unit for 20 years. And uh, they're right down here at Hector International. I go, really? And so sure enough, I went down there. And uh, I was talking to uh, one of the recruiters, Ron Wastford. I still remember his name. He was a great, uh, great individual. And uh, he said, well, yeah, it, it'd be nice. He said, I think about everybody that joins the unit wants to be a pilot. So, you know, that, that's good of you, but, you know, get in line, you know, and most people to get in line have to be enlisted first. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, well, sure, that makes sense. Well, how do I get enlisted? You know, let's do this. <laughs> so I thought it was almost that simple, which turned out to be not quite that simple. Mm -hmm. And then after two years of kind of working into the system, uh, because that time I spent in the Army almost cost me a clearance because they wanted to know why the Army didn't let me join. And it was like, wait a minute, that was my decision. Oh, yeah. yeah, It wasn't the Army's decision. That was my decision to, to switch and go to the Air Force. So actually had some of the people for the clearances come out to my house and interview my neighbors and make sure that I was this upstanding guy that could go into the air guard. I'm going for crying out loud. But anyway, so that's that what got me in. But I didn't get in really until two years later. And then I went to uh, basic training down at Lackland. I got to be in, in the student flight and uh, then off to Lowry Air Force Base, which is in Colorado, just outside of Denver. Uh, and Lowry was a former Air Force Base, and now they did avionics age, aerospace ground equipment training for the F-4. 
And so, yeah, I got to work on the F-4 for nearly three years. And I say nearly because the one thing I missed was the Good Conduct Medal. So you need to have three years oh, of enlisted sure. service. So I think I was two months short, and there's no way I could wiggle out of that. I didn't realize it, what I missed until I missed it, you know. So that's, uh, that's what got me into the Guard. And uh, so I started with that. And, I mean, long story short, uh, I was going, gosh, why do these folks stay in the Guard for so many years? I don't get it because I was... You know, during spring breaks or fall breaks and Christmas breaks, I was going out and putting in my two weeks of time. And because the summer I had to work to make enough money to go back to school. And and uh, so I just was struggling to figure out, well, why do people stay in the Guard? And then I went to a two-week training uh, event down at Biloxi, Mississippi. I went, I got it. I understand this now. What was it? Well, it was the camaraderie. It was, you know, all these people get together. And it's like, yeah, work hard, play hard kind of mentality. But... Golly, we would show up at work at you know to meet the first launches. So oftentimes at five o'clock, if you had the early early shows, that's zero five. Zero five hundred, right? But then you got off at like two in the afternoon, right? Because then you'd have the night shift to come in and take over at whatever at one o'clock. So you'd have an hour of overlap because you'd fly the jets for morning shift, afternoon, and night. And uh, I'm going, well, this is just pure fun, and it's just great to be around all these old heads, you know, that know so much about aviation and the pilots and. It was just fun. So I go, oh, I get it now. I understand why people stay in here because of this. Yeah. It's this, you know, this get-together, this, you know, formation of brotherhoods and sisterhoods that uh, makes it so special here in the Guard. A lot of, lot of fun. A lot of fun, Working yeah, with the F-4. Yeah. Did you want to fly the F-4 or, because I know that about 1985, you got a pilot position here at the 133rd. I did. So interesting story for me anyway. So... I, I had applied to the Fargo unit, so I'd been in the unit for probably just over a year. I took the AAFLQT, did pretty well on it, you know, had a degree and had started my master's. And uh, so, you know, everything was rolling along pretty well. And uh, so I finally got in, you know, I was like, gosh, I don't remember. They screened it down from 30 people, the first interview set, then we went down to like 10. So I got the second set of interviews and, and then I got selected the alternate. And I go, well, what does this mean? And uh, they said, well, if the primary gets hurt uh, and can't make it, then you will fulfill his position. And I went, oh, how often does that happen? Not very often. Mm -hmm. I go, well, oh, so that doesn't really mean much then, does it? No, it means you did really well and you should apply again next time. But now what I'm you know, up against is that, so it's 23, right? So 24, I think I apply. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm going, holy mackerel, you know, it's like 27 you got to be in or you're... you're you're done. You're starting to feel like an old man. Yeah, I'm, I'm just counting the years and going, I, can I wait for a whole nother year to apply for next year's pilot training class? And so as fortune would have it, my wife had started law school up here. And uh, so I came to visit her and I actually called this unit, the 133rd, and said, uh, are you guys interested in hiring any outside pilots? And they said, well, yeah, by the way, we have on a pilot board next month if you can give us your package. And I go, I can do that because it was already. Because well, I just had it, uh, you know, with the Fargo board, so I got it, and uh, sure enough, here I got in. Dan Kenefick and I were uh, selected on that on that uh, board. No kidding. Yeah. So you went from, uh, let's see, loud and fast <laughs> to the whisper jets here at the one thirty three. I did. I did. Did you fall in love with the Hercules then, or were you disappointed that you were now flying the 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 slow? beast that we have so you must have been able to read my facial expression there but uh, <laughs> th there was some disappointment i mean i you know there's that flair for dare when you're young you want to get you know fly around with your hair on fire and you know do some things that are fast and exciting right and mm -hmm. that's what the f force appeared to offer and then it was really reinforced when you went to pilot training because we got to fly, fly the 37 and the t-38 so you you know the one big ride was to go supersonic one day so you went up and did mark 1.4 and 
it was just like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, seeing the world go by at, uh, you know, 700 miles an hour or whatever it was, it's uh, it's pretty fun. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was, there was some regret, but I, I think, uh, and disappointment perhaps, and even some thoughts, but of seeing if I could switch and go to a fighter unit. But that's not where the commitment was made to me, and I didn't feel I should, you know, reverse that commitment. And besides that, I'd heard war stories about people that did it uh, and uh, got into a certain amount of trouble with the unit that sponsored them, right? Because oh, sure. you made a commitment to them for so many years, now you just broke that commitment to that contract. So, you know, I, I labored with that for a little while and just went, no, things work out for a reason. So stick with it, do a good job, and uh, things will work out for you. And, you know, obviously they did. And you... You come to appreciate the Herc uh, in a certain way that is almost, until you fly it long enough, it's hard to describe because it's got so many elements, right? It's got the strategic lift where you can go and see the world, mm -hmm. uh, but it's got the tactical lift too where you can get down low and, and do some stuff that's pretty dangerous when you're working and doing short field landings on unimproved strips. That's as close to the margin as you can work. You're just like a 1.1 over stall speeds, right, that you're flying in there. So it, it, it's tight, I mean, so you don't have a lot of give there where you're right on the, right on the envelope. So it's fun, I mean, because it was a challenge again, right? Just like flying fast would be a challenge. Yeah. So this was a different kind of challenge. Uh, it was a challenge to work with a crew because everybody's different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's motivated by different things and uh, everybody has different biases. And so I think if there was one thing through my years, uh, the 30 plus years, it was probably just trying to understand people and what motivated them. Because everybody is so different. And so that almost became a life study, you know. It's almost a barbershop psychologist kind of thing, right? So it's like, what's motivational to Chief, you know, Legbold? Uh, what, what, is, what, what just really gets him fired up in, at the end of the day? Do you think that by having to manage all the different personalities in a crew on a C-130, does that make for a better commander in the long run compared to somebody that flies a fighter where they're just by themselves? Well, we've had some really good leaders that have been fighter pilots, too. I, I work past. for one right now. Yeah, and so I, I would say that this crucible of leadership or this laboratory for leadership, um, the flight deck becomes a really good laboratory for leadership. And so, you know, you're doing things, and I've come to conclude that there's really almost three different areas you can categorically say that it's a leadership moment, right? So there's leadership in the immediate. I mean, you have to make a decision. And that's where a lot of people really struggle because you might only have 50, 60% of the data to make a really good decision, but you have to make the decision. So you have to trust those around you to make it right. Uh, you have to you know, siphon in the input as quickly as you possibly can to get that decision because uh, it has to be made. It's immediate. It has to be done now. We're going to run out of gas. We don't turn left or right and so which one is it going to be right so either we're going to go across the pond and go to England or we're going to turn left and divert into Iceland so but we got to make that decision now or we can turn around and go home uh, you know back where we came from so which one is it so we have three options right and so you, but you don't have a lot of time to make that so that's an immediate then you have the deliberate which I would think is a more oh maybe a, you know a day plus a day to six months right that's not quite strategic yet and then you have the considerate uh, decision-making, which is strategic decision-making, right? So you, the long-range stuff. And I pick six months because I think every leader should at least be six months ahead of the organization in thinking. Uh, you know, so 
you might have heard that old adage of the 30-30-30-10, right? 30% of your day is spent with planned activities, 30% of your day is spent with what? Unplanned activities, 30% of your day is spent, uh, you know, planning for activities, and then 10% is just kind of the, the miscellaneous stuff that, that might come or not. And so it's, uh, you know, the 30-30-30-10 uh, formula. So. Mm -hmm. Being an enlisted guy, I don't do math too much, but I think that adds up to 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back to... Uh, so talking about a little bit about leadership and culture, and you talked about the camaraderie that you had with the fighter folks up uh, in up North Dakota. I had Lieutenant Katie Morsh on just mm. uh, a couple podcasts ago, and she's just like you in that regard where she transferred from North Dakota down to us by way of the Peace Corps in between, which is oh, wow. a, another interesting story. Yeah. Um, did you find the culture of the 133rd with the C-130s a lot different or very similar to the culture of that uh, fighter wing? So I would expand on that. I, I found the culture of the unit writ large to be significantly different. Uh, so it was a tight brand band of individuals in Fargo. And I, I don't remember what the number of pilots were, but you know, it was probably 40 uh, or less. Um, so that was it. That's the flying squadron, right? And then you have the support people that go with it, you know, from the life support to, you know, you know some of the other folks that are there. Uh, but when you came to Minneapolis, now you had all the enlisted force with you, the loads, the engineers, and you had the NAVs, uh, and you had the aeromeds, mm -hmm. which was altogether a whole different culture, right? So now you had this mass of people. I mean, there's, instead of just 40 people in a squadron, there's like you know, really the 100 and the 100, right? So 100 in the Aeromeds, which they were a flight then, but they're squadron now and 100 in the squadron. So all of a sudden it was just this huge, huge, you know, growth of, uh, you know, flyers wearing flight suits all around. It was yeah. where in Fargo you would see just a handful of guys at any, in, any given day and most of them just at lunch or, you know, walking around on the way out to the jet. And, right. you know, I worked inside a lot. Uh, I would go out and help the folks. We called it walking the dogs because they had the old uh, inertial nav systems. And so you'd have to calibrate them by, you know, walking the jet in a circle, in essence. So you had a tug and you walked it in a circle and then you calibrated it. Uh, and you might see a few on the flight line here and then, but I just thought it was cool to get out on the flight line, but you just didn't see that many pilots walking around or that many people in flight suits. So, you know, not understanding culture, being that young, I think, to be honest with you, uh, there was a stark difference, though, just in the, the mentality and the attitude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A little bit more... Would you consider the, the commanders and the officers here to be a little bit more down to earth because they work so much more with the enlisted folks, or is it? Uh, what's the big difference? Yeah, that you know, I I, I think there's still that uh, that attitude that somewhat prevails, and uh, probably even more so back then, because uh, it was you know really almost a, a good old boys' air force. There's a lot of Vietnam veterans that were were flying and. Uh, you know, people were more apt to to do something uh, and ask uh, forgiveness rather than ask permission, right? It was mm -hmm. almost that kind of mentality. And so it, I think there's that's a comparable uh, denominator, certainly between, you know, the fighter pilots and the pilots here. You know, I think what kind of maybe leveled that, brought it down a bit, uh, was that whole input thing that you had to take input from the crews because you're a crew crew-driven uh, airplane. Um, but we went through a lot of training from crew resource management because for that reason, people were still kind of that 
blockhead old pilot and I know best. Mm -hmm. And that was causing incidents and accidents, right? So the way to resolve that, and United started the pro program, I think in the what, late 80s, early 90s, because I remember going through CRM training almost from the beginning, uh, to try to understand personalities, right? So are you the 9-9 guy or the 1-1 guy or the 1-9 or the 9-1, right? So 9-9 being, you know, I always ask that on an interview because I always thought it was, <laughs> It was indicative of what kind of personality that the individual had. So one being the least and nine being the most in two categories. Uh, where would you classify yourself? Uh, the first category being compassion and the second category being discipline. So are you compassionate? Are you a one or a nine? Are you, can you be a disciplinary area? Are you a one or a nine? And so, you know, sometimes I would, I don't, I don't know what the right formula is because everybody's different. Uh, but I would think when you get up there somewhere to be the 8-8 or 9-9, that's what a, a lot of them were, and a lot of them were the 1-9s. I really wasn't compassionate at all and didn't give a crap about you, but uh, I was, you know, I could really hold the line with you because uh, that's the way I was taught, right? And that's the way it's going to be with, with you. But I think good leaders of today are probably more than 9-9s. I mean, they can really hold the line. They're, they're disciplinarians. But, you know, they can cry with you, too, on the next day, right? Because you might have lost a loved one or had a bad incident happen in your life. So I think, you know, good leaders of today can bounce between both of those. And so you a hugger well. or a hammer then? Well, you know, I was, grew, grew up in a pretty German family, so there wasn't a lot of hugging that went on where I grew up. So, But uh, I, I do think I'm a compassionate individual. I'm probably more a 7-9 or 8-9, somewhere around there, uh, you know, I'm, and hugging is, is, is a slippery slope too, right? So uh, the, with a mixed force, you have to be real careful, sure. uh, you know, how you hug people and give them the wrong impression. So I tended not to be a big hugger for that reason. I just thought to keep the force pure, uh, I would, you know, I'll shake your hand, uh, I'll talk to you, I'll offer you my ear, and if you want, I'll give you my advice. If you don't, uh, you know, I'll just sit and listen to you. So, uh, you know, that's that whole, you know, my world works in kind of, Categories of three, you know, it's the listen, analyze, act kind of stuff. So you sound like an engineer. When yeah, I know. And then it's the facts, sources, and opinions, which I <laughs> wish the whole world would adhere to now. It's like, give me the facts, tell me where you got them from, and then let's let's talk about opinions and what that really means. And I think we don't do enough of that. So you've you've developed all of this, all the, all your philosophies and ideologies over time, and starting as a lieutenant, and working your way all the way up to wing commander here. Um, you were our wing commander for a good long time. I mean, nowhere near Ray Miller, but... <laughs> or Dolny. Yeah, or Dolny. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you were our wing commander for a good long time. It was relatively stable while you were our wing commander. Is that a factual statement? Don't ask me for my source. I'm just going off my opinion. But from 2006 to 2013, we were in pretty constant deployment Locations. cycles. Yep. There wasn't a whole lot of tumultuous stuff going on locally. Um, what was the biggest challenge you faced as a, as a wing commander leading 1,200 people in eight planes? Well, I, you know what I observed? So a lot of my, you know, how I operate, you know, the philosophies are based on the observations through time, right? Um, uh, and I found that, you know, all the different psychologists I've talked to are and the books I've read concerning it. Uh, I'm consistent with what's been, you know, academically uh, determined. I just use different words because uh, I don't have the right academic training to say what it's academically consists of, right? Uh, 
Okay, and so I, um, I think I look back at the philosophies gained through the years. Um, based on those observations, it, it just, I don't know a good or better way to really, you know, enlighten the audience. Uh, but I think if you're walking with your eyes wide open, you can take an awful lot in each and every day. And uh, I would encourage people to do that. Um, it goes back to where we just discussed the Listen, Analyze Act, right? Mm -hmm. And I think my dad probably gave me that perspective early on. It's like, you know, no matter how much you don't respect somebody, always take the time to listen to them. And so I hope through my years here as the wing that I gave them, you know, I, the heartfelt uh, impression that I, I was listening because I was trying to hear people and what their what their issues were. Um, you know, what what was the hardest part of that I think was your question in essence was probably to get people to, to talk and be comfortable with you. And so, as wing commander, you have people talk and be comfortable with you. To talk and be comfortable with me, sure. uh, you know, and then remember what we said too. Being a disciplinarian, I'm not the real huggy guy, but I'll certainly, you know, smile with you and laugh with you, and and we can have a good conversation. So I, you know, I would send the chiefs out, the command chiefs, and I called them my wildcatters, because uh, I couldn't necessarily get in and sense if something was good, bad, or indifferent. You know, if there's a commander, or if there's a chief that gone rogue on me. I, you know, I would be shielded from that, I, I felt, and I could get in and I would sense something, you know, because if people aren't talking to me, then I'm going, well, what's going on? Why would somebody be scared to talk, right? Why wouldn't they just open up and say, hey, you know, boss, or hey, colonel, you know, I, I think this is, you know, we're, we're deploying way too much, or uh, the deployment cycle's killing us, uh, you know, or boy, you know, what, what are we going to do? How do we fix this? When do we get out of this? What do I tell my new recruits that are coming in? Does this go on forever? Uh, so if I wasn't getting those kind of questions, then I'm going, well, there's something peculiar here. Mm -hmm. So I'd send my wildcatters in because there seemed to be, there seemed to be a, an honest broker piece with the command chiefs that could get into the enlisted force and go, what's going on? Oops. Well, you know, the shirt's been telling us this. Yeah. And, uh, or, you know, the chief over there told me that this is going to happen. And so, you know, that was the other part I would give you is that the biggest piece uh, to keeping a wing running smoothly is to fill the rumor voids. Because yeah. if you can't communicate to people what's going on or what potentially is going to go on, uh, then somebody's going to fill that space for you. And it's probably not going to be with good talk, right? And so that was always hard, was to keep the communication flowing. And you know, how do you get that message out? And regardless if you did, I mean, I was, again, on theories of three. And unfortunately, the people close to me heard that message at least three times, probably going into a drill weekend. but. It, it seemed to work, uh, you know, because people would finally hear the message and go, no, we're, we're going to move from Afghanistan to Kuwait, but we're not going to do that until 2012 or whenever it was. Mm -hmm. And we did that for good reason, because there was a certain amount of complacency developing in uh, Afghanistan. And it was starting to show with incidents and accidents. Sure. And so, yeah, boy, you better change the calculus rather quickly, unless you're going to crash somebody and uh, crash an airplane and kill somebody, and you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer, I think, the hardest part of the question was there's a certain amount of information that needs to be sieved uh, and shouldn't be passed because it's, it's just it's not formed to a point where it's concrete enough to be you know public domain stuff right it's it's a what if or maybe we're thinking about it it's being deliberated 
And so that was always the, the, the tender spot to try to cross over to, you know, where, where does it get communicated and where doesn't it? Because if it's talked about at higher levels, i.e. at the readiness center or AMC, then it's probably going to leak into the wing from an alternative source. If I'm hearing you right, the biggest challenge you faced as a wing commander was good, honest feedback coming to you candidly. Yes, that was one of the, you know, there was a, some little phrases that I tried to incorporate and make almost foundational, is that we should always be able to have conversations candid but cordial. Yeah. Right? So you have to be candid with me. It, it, it's the old uh, General Electric, uh, Jack Welch, right? That's how he treated the organization so, and was so successful with yeah. it. There's candid but cordial. And I, those aren't the words he used, but it, in essence, the meaning of what he intended. So what was your proudest accomplishment as the wing commander? Well, I think, you know, when I look back, I would, um, it, it's hard to explain how much you kind of fret and, uh, you know, lose sleep over the deployments because you don't know if everybody's going to come back whole or if everybody's going to come back. And I always thought, you know, the departure ceremonies should be pretty much internal. I, I, I became more and more protective of that as more and more as we deploy continuously from uh, 6 through 13. And because, uh, you know, the families never really knew. I mean, right? So I'm sending the guy or my, my daughter or my, my wife or my husband or, or my son. I'm sending them over to a war zone. And are they going to come back? And then... And what fraction of them might come back, right? Are they going to come back at 80% or 100%? And so I always thought there was an uncertainty when you let somebody leave. When they came home, then let's, let's you know, blow the, blow the roof off the place. This is a celebration. Yeah. And we should all be happy everybody came home safely, right? So there's a certain amount of worry that was always there. And you would wake up going, oh, I wonder what happened when they had that break in there on the fence over in Bagram today. I hope none of our guys got hurt, right? Because sometimes you would hear it through the sensitive channels before you'd hear communication back from our folks. Yeah. So there was always a worry there, I think, you know, that is everybody going to come back? Is everybody going to be all right? Uh, you know, there's shenanigans and people are people and there was dumb stuff that happened. Uh, you know, sometimes we termed it adult daycare, right? That's all it really is, is, you know, there's a bunch of kids out there that are going to do dumb stuff. And you have to police them up at the end of the day, and hopefully it's not too stupid, right? Right. And I remember when uh, the WISO, uh, I think it was Ann Todd, and we were going through those, the sexual assault, and, and she was the sapper at that point. And, you know, when I heard of something, uh, you know, we acted and we acted swiftly, uh, but we didn't do it and broadcast it to the wing. Right. And I thought, you know, at that time, ethically, I ordered to, to the person that maybe had been abused and the, the abuser that it was between the wing and them, and we were going to stop there. Because, you know, what I saw through the ages, too, is that when this massive amount of information starts to spread through the wing, that becomes the conversation. That becomes the talk of the day. And we're not talking now about how do we safely deploy and, right. and how do we maintain, you know, our vigilance and, uh, and what we're doing on the flight line today and, and how do we correctly operate in the communications environment if we're so distracted by the other stuff that's mm -hmm. going on. Uh, but she said, no, you need, to, you need to tell them. So we did. And I think it went over well. I think there was four instances at that time where we just said, hey, you're gonna see, you won't see people here. You won't know why. But I'm telling you, they did a despicable act, and I'm not going to tolerate it. Yeah. And so the point was, she wanted to make sure that everybody knew that there was action that was being taken, you know, if you were working on the wrong side of what was right. Yeah. And yeah. so we did. Um, you know, there was one... One point, and you know, Kevin Roach helped me out a lot on this on a different subject, so I'm defaulting back to where we were talking about the hardest parts of the wing. 
So in that same vein, there was times, you know, where there was issues going on larger than the wing, congressionals that were being administered, you know, IG complaints that were, we were being dealt, uh, you know, just it was a litany of things, right? So it's always something going on. Uh, and it's, it, you know, we, we're anyway, feeling that now. Anyway, Commander, <laughs> well, yeah, you're sitting right next to the, the, the decision makers and you're giving them the guidance as to how do we do the enlisted force. It's, you know, it's a simple thing. Uh, I'm going to get back to it eventually, but the simple thing I put together kind of a panel of officers and a panel of enlisted. And, you know, the vice head of the officers and the command chief head of the enlisted. And it was to review enlistments that needed a waiver. And I, I, I had to force people to give me input, not just to throw this thing on my table and go, well, this individual has a big tattoo on his arm, really sharp though, you know, did it years ago, wants to get in the unit, do you want to take him? Uh, well, I don't know, do I want to take him? I don't even know the individual. So I, I had to create these two boards to kind of review people and give me a recommendation, do I sign off on this individual or not? Uh, so, and I thought they did a great service because they did actually deliberately go through and go, you know, yeah, yes, yes, and strike through or strike uh, out this individual, or strike in or strike out. So, you know, that was that was helpful to force input back to the to the wing level. The the one piece that you know, absolutely, I think I kept it kind of confined. Uh, we, along with the 934th, uh, had been threatened for closure. So there was a, you know, it's the old the Iron Majors thing, and I saw it at my time in the Pentagon. So we need to make a decision at the, uh, you know, the C-130 levels, the force structure is too high, and we need to draw down 16 tails. Uh, and we heard that those units in Minneapolis don't get along. So why don't we just shut down Minneapolis and then we get 16 tails, eight from each, uh, the reserve components, the Guard and the Reserve. And so we fought that for a period of time. In fact, our two-star liaison, I won't say his name, at the AMC, uh, I said, you know, I don't know why you'd want to shut down a unit that can recruit to 110%. Uh, when we were asked to, we did. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uncomfortable at 110%. I always thought 105 to 107 is probably the sweet spot. Uh, 103 to 105 is, is a good spot as well. Anything below that, it's a little iffy, right? So then you can fall below 100 too, too easily. So there was a lot of behind the scenes talk that went on. And then Kevin Roach, we got together and we had all these planning teams that came about and go, did the what ifs. And that was to kind of you know make an informed input again back to the wing as to what could we accept as a mission. So we went through all the deliberations of J models and uh, the future airlifters and C-17s and, you know, or even being shut down and how, how, how could we manage that? And uh, how would that work? And so it was kind of interesting because I think we had four or five different, uh, you know, options for flying options. And then we had one team that was working on any combination thereof. So you be the wildcatter in this group. You, you kind of sit in on all four of these other groups, yeah. and you listen to them, and then you come up with a fifth option. Maybe it's a combination or a blend of the other four, but at the end of the day, you know, give me that input. What, what, what should we be? But anyway, so I think it consisted of, you know, so we briefed the tag on it, of course, and the tag briefed the governor. Uh, we went and made our case for why. Why would you shut down the 133? Right. Why would you take these airplanes? And so after I think it was probably six months to almost a year, somewhere in that time frame, that we started to get the positive feedback that no, you know, you're going to you're going to keep your C-130s and yeah, your your MC rates, your recruitment rates, you know, your location, the way you can recruit to the medical uh, fields, because you know we started to look at every different pocket in the U.S. has a 
you know, a skill set kind of centric to them, right? Uh, so the SCADA stuff, you know, the, the, you know, how do we protect our networks and infrastructure? Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, big out in Seattle, right, out on the East Coast, which makes sense. That's where you know Microsoft is, right? And a lot of the big companies. If you looked at a lot of the other, like the internet stuff, kind of surprised me. Some of the cyber strengths down in New Mexico, because they have all the you know the skunk works and you know all, sure. all the stuff down there. So they have all the high end corporations to kind of funnel through them. So. You know, we have this really high level of, you know, medical expertise here in the Twin Cities, which is hard to find, which is why we have the surf, and which is why we have a, you know... The, it's a perfect place for an aeromedical is. evacuation and an unit type of C-130s, And not it? just one, but two. Yeah. Because yeah. the reserves are fully manned, too. So now, when you combine our efforts, what the reserve and I actually did, and Daryl Young was the wing commander over there at the time, well, Daryl, let's see how many things were joint. And when uh, Johns came here, the four-star from AMC, we were bold enough to say, you know, we were an association before associations were bold. Yeah. We just didn't know it. And if you looked at us, we're right now easily operating 25 to 30% cheaper than if you had two independent C-130 units, just by what we share. Uh, so we don't have redundant test equipment because we yeah. are our own redundancies. We don't need another, you know, landing zone or drop zone because we share landing zones and drop zones. And by the way, if you looked at, you know, the Air Force joint use agreement that we have with the MAC, uh, we're operating at like $4.2 million cheaper than somebody like Duluth who has to pay for their own fire department. And so we are a bargain every way you look at it. So I don't know why it would even be a consideration to shut down the wings. And the guard still continues to, even with the reserve, it, we still continue to be a big bargain. I'm going to reintroduce you. We're going to take a break and uh, then come back. I've been talking with uh, retired Brigadier General Greg Hazy. We're going to get back in just a minute and talk a little bit about history and then a little bit more a deeper dive into the man, the myth, the legend, and our former wing commander. So stick around. <laughs> this is Master Sergeant Rodney Gaddis, Recruiting Flight Chief for the 133rd Airlift Wing. The 133rd Airlift Wing has an open production recruiter position we are looking to fill. We are looking for someone who is enthusiastic, self-motivated, and enjoys sharing the great things we do here in the Minnesota Air National Guard. If you're a senior airman through Tech Sergeant and you believe you have what it takes to recruit the brightest and smartest, please consider applying for this great opportunity. This position closes 17 May, 2021. For more information, please visit minnesotanationalguard.ng.mil, that is Minnesota nationalguard.ng.mil. Click on careers and click on full-time jobs. I've been talking with retired Brigadier General Greg Hazy, and we've been talking a lot about history out here at the wing and some of the challenges and uh, successes he faced and had as a wing commander. Um, but you do a whole lot more than that since you've left us. Um, you've kind of come back and found a niche being the go-to person for all of our wing history. Yeah, I, I you know, the centennial is a, a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? You only get to celebrate being the first of uh, something in the 100-year in the celebration once, and so we thought we should uh, really do it right. And so we uh, have formatted a book, and we're trying to complete that, and so I've really gotten to, you know, rehash the history, and we were so fortunate that Eva Miller uh, kept such meticulous records of what uh, General Miller did through the course of his career. So 
That is just an open book in and of itself. So you can go there, every newspaper clipping, how prevalent we were in the in 1920s and 30s. And, you know, there's all these little interesting nuances that surround that. Uh, you know, and I'll certainly share some stories with you, but I, I think the first you almost have to start with the inaugural flights in 1920. So, and it's hard to put people in an open-air cockpit unless you fly an ultralight or something of that regard. Right, right. Uh, but how exposed you are. I mean, just the elements, right? So take us through, um, and I'm glad you bring it up, because, I mean, if I'm listening to this and I've never heard of the 133rd, and I really don't have any idea about our history, how did we get to that point, even? So the Militia Bureau put out a flyer saying that they were going to allow ancillary units in the Army divisions. Uh, auxiliary units is actually what they termed this them. was back in 19... This was 19? in 1920. 1920. Yep, they were going to allow auxiliary units in, in the Guard units, in the divisions. So you almost have to back up a little bit further. Uh, so we are the first federally recognized National Guard flying unit in the country. Federally recognized. The first organized flying militia would really go to New York. And they had actually organized a militia uh, to fly airplanes because every state is different. You know, some had organized militias and, and we didn't at that time. Uh, but when we got that circular, there was, you know, three men, T. Glenn Harrison, a reporter for the St. Paul Press, and then uh, Major Miller and Lieutenant Colonel Garris, the assistant adjutant general, uh, sat down and said, well, hey, why don't we take advantage of this auxiliary unit and uh, we'll, we'll start, we'll organize this under the auspices of, of this flyer from the Militia Bureau. So they did. And uh, shortly thereafter, in July, they held, so it came out in June and in July, they held their first muster. Hmm. And they borrowed stuff from the St. Paul Armory and, you know, different army units and, uh, you know, started building this team. Uh, you know, they worked through this now July, August, and then the September, right? So these were about that patient of men, right? So this has almost been three months. We've got no traction on this yet. What in the world? we got to make a trip out to Washington. And they didn't. They couldn't just send an email out to D.C. Oh, gosh, right? no. And, you know, Western Union, we've got a lot of telegrams. Yeah, uh, yeah they were sending telegrams, but uh, no emails. <laughs> Phone service was very, very sketchy, to say the least. And so, yeah, they, they talked the Adjutant General Rhino into renting in Curtis Oriole from the Curtis uh, Northwest uh, airfield, uh, which was up on the corner, which now is Larpenter and Schnelling. Okay. And it was just a big field up there to the southeast of the corner of Larpenter and Schnelling. And that was really the first airport in Minnesota. Uh, and now where exists Curtis Park, is where we celebrated last September. Uh, so they got together, and it's just kind of the whole story in and of itself is pretty interesting because on the morning they were going to leave, Garris remarked, so now it's Garris Rhino and, uh, and uh, Miller are going to leave for, for Bowling Field in Washington. Garris remarked, uh, gosh, this is crazy. All these people want to take our pictures, and it keeps getting delayed. And, and then, golly, to top it off, they put a chase plane up so they can take a picture of us in the air before we leave. And so it was just like they got delayed like three hours. And then they, they described the toils of their flight, which took six days of flying and, and seven days total because they got weathered out one day. But, I mean, as you would expect, they were fortunate to make it in this fragile aircraft because it's just made out of wire and cloth wings and balsa mm -hmm. wood to frame it with and a little bit of metal in the motor, right? One motor. And so they weren't very reliable, and many people to go of a truck of that nature would never make it. They'd land someplace and, and be shut down. I mean, the airplane just wouldn't work anymore. And so they were very fortunate, number one, just to make it. Uh, and then when they got there, they got met by Billy Mitchell, uh, which you've probably heard of, so Mitchell Field in, in Milwaukee there. And Mitchell was a really big advocate for aviation resources going into the Army units. 
because of course there was no Air Force till 1947, right? Till after World War II. And uh, so he was an advocate, but he was not pleased when Miller and Garrett showed up because Rhino had actually, on their weather day, he departed by train and beat him uh, to Washington. So he actually had a day's worth of work in Washington and Rhino's schedule, you know, kind of compressed, said, well, heck, I, I, I feel pretty good about getting this federal recognition, so I'm just going to let Miller and Garris take the rest of it. And he hopped on a train and left, so Rhino flew out there with him. He did one day of work in, in Washington, and then he left. And so Miller and Garris carried the baton, but first they had to get through Mitchell. And so, you know, and Mitchell, he was a court-martial for insubordination eventually. Did you know that? No, I didn't yeah. know that. He got, he was, uh, you know, reconciled back and, and, and held the rank in general, but uh, he was such an avid aviation enthusiast that all the old army generals just going, you're a jerk, and they court-martialed him, you know. Huh. So he was just in their face all the time, right? So we got we to gotta go with this aviation movement. It's, it's the way of the future, you know. But anyway, so he uh, confronts Garris, goes, where'd you get those observer wings? The Air Force or the Army Air Corps doesn't even have observer wings. I said, well, I was sitting in the front seat. I thought it would be kind of a nice, nice thing to have at least wings on, and this appeared to be the appropriate way. And he goes, it's a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> that wasn't already used, but... Uh, yeah, you get the drift. And so he, the meeting did not start off well, to say the least. And then he asked Miller, he said, well, where'd you get those wings? Some drugstore or what? You know, and uh, Miller, no, sir, I got them in Love Field down in Texas, and then I, I flew in World War I, uh, you know, over there. He goes, oh, so did I. And all of a sudden, there was this immediate kinship. Sure. And uh, actually, Mitchell became an advocate for us being the first federally recognized and walked him through all the gates of, in Washington. And I actually secured that, of which three months later, you know, on January 17th, 1921, we were the first federally recognized National Guard flying unit. So it was quite a feat. And I would share one thing. Garris then wrote a, a big thing. You know, there was two papers, because that's how everybody communicates. So the Star and Tribune was, I think the, the morning was the Minneapolis Star, and the afternoon was the Minneapolis Tribune. And that was the same with St. Paul had two papers, you know, mm -hmm. the St. Paul Daily Press and the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And so... The, he they carried like a, a full one-page article of all this flying. You know what you know Garris's uh, uh, kind of diary of this whole flight was. And at the end of it, he writes, "You know this flying really is the way of the future because all you need is like an open pasture to land in, some more gas to refuel, maybe some oil, and you're on your way again." You know, so yeah, that was really the way we were a hundred years ago. You know, so it's a, it's come quite a long way. So. And we're still flying the best maintained planes out there. Uh, yes, indeed, that's a great thing. Um, so. The 100th year anniversary, it got struck a, a pretty big blow by just how this year has gone. 2020 has just been, I mean, we, we had a big big day planned. We were going to just do it upright right, for our 100th. It's been a tumultuous year in the Guard. Yeah. And um, it started out, we had our flyers return. Um, COVID hit George Floyd and the full activation of the Minnesota Guard, including 100% of the Minnesota Air National Guard, um, uh, inauguration support, where our wing provided the most airlift for passengers, the most mm -hmm. airlift for cargo, and flew the most sorties out of any Air National Guard mm -hmm. unit. 10% of the total package. 10%, was, yeah, um, of all of it. And it, it was an awesome feat just watching the wing mobilize. And I was out in D.C. for it. And on our 100th anniversary, I drove past Bowling Field out there and uh, watched our planes land and take off and do this huge movement to, for inaugurational support. Guard's a different place now. And people have commented that the guard has become the easy button. Mm. 
Do you think that the guard has become the easy button or is the world just harder? Well, I think we've, I think you started out with the right statement, right? This was a very hopefully unusual year, right? With a pandemic and then the civil unrest that erupted after the, you know, killing of George Floyd. So, you know, I think the guard filled their role as what, you know, constitutionally they were described to do. And I did it very well, especially this unit. So, you know, all the historians and storytellers that I've talked to generally say the richest parts of the stories are the beginning and the end. In the middle, I mean, there can be some really intriguing and interesting parts, but usually the beginning and the end are, are the most interesting parts of the mm-hmm. story. So I, I think you hit it right there. I mean, the imagination and grit it took to, you know, launch this unit in 1921 is still prevalent today. Uh, how do we do business? How do we mobilize people? How do we do state active duty? You know, how do we train people to do a policing action almost that, you know, aren't security forces folks? Those are big feats that were innovated to a solution, right? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the imagination and grit that is still there today. How do you imagine a world that's better and then make it that way? Uh, I think that's the next piece that we need to resolve, right? So how do we look forward and say, how do we, how do we break this civil unrest? How do we make this racial equity you know, be what it should be? Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. I, I think sometimes you know, the ideologue in me would say, you know, it started here in Minnesota. Why can't it end? I think that would be great. We would, we would like it. You speak about beginning, middle, and end, and I think we are in a, everybody wants to say, are we done yet with, right. with all of the civil unrest, with all the difficulties that our, our nation has gone through just in the last year. Um, I, I would like to think that the wing as a whole is somewhere in the middle of its history, and we are at this new point where all the grit and determination and the, the creativity and the problem solving that has had to go into this is going to make us poised for a, a really good next hundred years. Do you think that the legacy of Ray Miller is well stated, well stated in our hundredth year by what we've accomplished? And what do you see for us ahead? I, I do. I, you know, Miller was certainly a visionary, so he was looking ahead constantly. Uh, but he also had the, the grit of the you know the best soldier you could imagine. Uh, so I'll share one story that I just think exemplifies what happened in 1922 uh, and the courage it took to do this mission. But in 1922, and it was January, the Cook County Commissioner, Commissioner Mayer, was lost out in Lake Superior, and Governor Prius at the time activated the guard. And so Miller and Westover flew up to Duluth. Uh, in a snowstorm, basically, and they were trying to get to Port Arthur, uh, which is up, you know, by Graham, by Graham Array up in that area. And uh, so that was where their, their intended field of landing was. Well, they couldn't land on the field because there was too dug on much snow. Oh my. So they ended up landing on the inland ice shelf on Lake Superior. And they operated off this L- ice shelf for the next 17 days. They made they made inroads. They, they had, you know, teamed up with the Canadian Mounted Rockies uh, to, to do the search. Uh, they hired Native Americans and dog sleds to run up and down the coast to look for him. They hired some tugs uh, to go out and search the islands while they were patrolling the seas looking for any kind of debris or, or his boat. Now, that might sound like, like pretty hard work because it's below zero. And, it, and Miller describes this where he had to stick his face outside the windscreen when he's landing so he could see, right? Because mm-hmm. it was generally all fogged up and full of snow. 
he froze his face so many times, he said, I was peeling skin off my face for two weeks after I got home. Oh, my. So you can imagine, how, what kind of courage does it take to fly an airplane to, and determination to look for somebody that's missing uh, you know, in an open-air cockpit? Well, to top it off, I mean, the story only, I think, gets more intriguing is that, well, their search was futile. They never did find the commissioner. He was lost in Lake Superior. So they're heading back to Duluth. And it was so cold, their engine was freezing up, and they were getting low on gas, and they had to land on Lax Lake, which is just inland from, like, Silver Bay. Mm -hmm. And so the difficulty, of course, is that I don't know how much snow is on the lake. Um, I can't see the ice shelf there. It's snow. So if I land and it's too deep, I'm going to flip this thing over, right? Uh, unfortunately, when you're landing, you're in a nose-up attitude, which makes it a little easier. Uh, so they were fortunate enough to land, uh, and then they went to shore when they saw these lights over there in this trapper's cabin, and he called them fins. Yeah, these fins were not very happy to see us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were probably, you know, just assumed that we left, but we had to make the case that we were here to stay. And it probably helped that we each had a revolver on our sides <laughs> to <laughs> convince them that that was the right thing to do. Uh, so these fins obliged, and they spent the night there. But then the imagination and grit the next morning, so the engine is completely froze. Miller describes this. I'm hanging on the prop with my full body weight, and it's not moving. It's completely froze. Because, mm. you know, they had plugged it in with some kind of heater, heaters when they were up on the ice shelf. Um, but here, they had no such thing, so they, they took some rocks, and they heated rocks on a fire on shore. And with two sets of flyers gloves, they carried the hot rocks and put them underneath the motor and on top of the motor to try to heat the motor, which they eventually did. And in the meantime, they took some old gas, and they strained it because it was full of rust and sediment, and put it in the motor because they were almost out of gas, as I right. said. So they got the, the motor running, but now there's so much snow, and you're on a more of a nose-down attitude when you're taking off. They were plowing snow with the props, so they had to stop it, and they you know, tamped down with the help of the trappers because they wanted to get rid of them. They tamped down a path out there so they could eventually take off. And the only bright spot to the whole thing was the same breeze that was frostbiting them. You know, It was a terrible wind that was up there. was now blowing from the south, and... Uh, so they were getting a great lift, and they were able to take off and just clear the trees and make it back to Duluth. And it ended in an exhaustive search that had just begun because they thought they lost Miller and Westover out right. on the lake as yeah. well. So I, I think that kind of courage, that perseverance, that all translates to today. And it speaks loudly to the airmen that went down and defended our streets and you know helped with the pandemic and defended our inauguration and defended really our systems, right? Our systems of justice and righteousness. So... I think it speaks loudly for what the wing is today. It's a, it's a good thing to be a part of. Absolutely, and we all we all have this part that connects us to that, and it's nice to be reminded of where we actually came from as a wing. Every so often, I'm with with the just how many people came before you, came before I did, and and had that same kind of grit and determination and. Yeah. You know, we show up in our air-conditioned office and then complain when the heat's not working or <laughs> vice versa, like today. Uh, but honestly, it's there's a great storied history out here. There is. You know, and I, I would just, unfortunately, it doesn't get enough of mention, I don't think. Bill Miller was kind of the, the father of the garden. He, he networked. I mean, when we looked at all the different Western Union telegrams from, you know, Minnesota Manufacturing and Mining 3M or you know, the different newspapers or sports teams. or He was part of everything that was going on in this in this state. Yeah. Uh, so he was a very integral part. But Dalney, Major General Dalney, a World War II pilot who came and led the wing for over 20 years, you know, really did a significant thing because, you know, we struggled to get fighters. We kept the P-51 for a lot of years and struggled to get fighters at the end of the 50s. 
uh, only to realize that they crashed a lot and the metropolitan area was building quite rapidly and it would be very, very tragic to crash a jet fighter, especially with a nuclear-tipped uh, Genie missile on it yeah. out in the population base here. So he made a case to go global and uh, brought the C-97 into the wing. So that, just knowing and having worked with other units that have transitioned from fighter jets to you know airlift, it's a hard transition. Yeah, It's a whole different, as we talked earlier, in the cultural shift uh, that has to happen. Uh, going from a single-seat airplane to a multi-seat airplane, it's, it's a, it is a shift. Uh, so, you know, but he did that and uh, probably doesn't get enough credit for it in a lot no. of regards. But here we are today, still flying. Here we are today. There was a great big planes. There's an interesting phenom, and some of it good, some of it not so good, but every year that ends in one seems to have some significance for the wings. So, 1921, we were founded. 1931 was the largest aerial demonstration ever put together to date. And all 17 guard units were led by Major Miller, mm. where we had 54 airplanes out with the 600 and some from the active duty. And they did aerial demonstrations out of Wright Field in, in Ohio. So, and, and Miller was recognized by General MacArthur at the time as being you know, this really credible leader. Uh, and he was awarded the National Guard Officer of the Year uh, for his efforts that year. So 31 was significant. 41, we know, as World War II started. Yeah. 51 was the Korean War which we were activated with Duluth, which was our partner at that time. They, yeah. were, they were subordinate to the wing. So, and a lot of people wouldn't know the wing, and through the 50s, had other units with it, right? So it was Sioux Falls, Fargo, Duluth, and us. So there was, and we were the lead wing, they were the flying groups. And so that stayed until the 90s, actually, where we had subordinate wings with us. For instance, in the C-130E, we had Rhode Island and Martinsburg. Mm -hmm. When we finally transitioned to the H in the mid-90s, we became a, the sole wing as the other wings did. So it's kind of got an interesting history, but as we transition forward, then 61 was the Berlin crisis. Uh, 71, we got the A models. 81, we got the E models. 91, Shield and Storm. 2001, we know what happened. Yep. 2011 was our 90th anniversary. That's the only thing that I found of significance there, and that was probably what started me on the history trail, to be honest with you. So I was looking for all the records from the museum for our 90th history, which after 9-11, completely scattered throughout the wing. Sure. They were in containers back in the back parking lot, in the long-term parking. They were in the cold storage. They were in the, the culvert hangar up there. Some were still in the museum. Some were here in the headquarters. I mean, there was documents scattered all over the wing. So we did like kind of a, a search to try to reconvene all that stuff and put our history back in order. And here we are in 2021, and it started out with us doing so much great airlift to support the inauguration. I think we're going to end the book there. It ah. seems like an appropriate place to end the book. It's it just, would be. Yeah, you know, highlight that as, you know, this was 10% of the total effort. It was done by, you know, the, the men and women of the 133rd. And, uh, you know, in fact, it was patrolled out there by men and women of the 133rd yep. and the Greater Minnesota National Guard. So I, I think that's a fitting end to the book. Uh, Sounds like a good last, a good chapter to start the sequel. Yeah, uh, there you go. Right? The next hundred. So, uh, talking about heritage and your place in the wing is not quite done because you still have two guys that are serving, right? Oh, I do. Yeah. I got two boys. Yeah. Um, and both of them in the air guard, right? They are, yeah. And, yeah, and attached yeah. with us. Both in the medical group. Yep. Uh, so, bringing up these guys while you were so busy with your military career, how'd you balance parenting? Um, with a busy career in the military, because I know your spouse also has a very busy career as well. Yeah, I think my Bridge and I agreed on a basic 
uh, philosophy. Let's make memories and not just money. And so we kind of carried that through, and every time we'd have to look at each other once in a while and go, hey, remember that? Let's, let's make memories and not just money. So let's not work all the time. Let's take the kids and let's like have quality vacations. And uh, they hated me for it, but someday I'll get them digitized. At the end of every summer, we would kind of sit down and do a quick little videotape going, what's your greatest memory of the summer? So was it the trip to the Boundary Waters or was it the... You know, we rented a houseboat up on uh, uh, Rainy Lake and went over to Sag up there. Or, you know, was it the cabin that we rented on the Whitewater chain? Or, you know, what was it? You know, or, you know, and I think there's things that you always compensate for, right? So if you're, you know, what I would tell folks, you know, the one thing I couldn't have done if I was an airline pilot probably was to coach my kids in baseball. Because mm-hmm. I could kind of regulate my, you know, commitment out here to where I could actually coach both boys in baseball. So I was with them every night from... May until almost July, you know, short of a few nights, of course, that you had to go somewhere, run out to D.C. Uh, and by the time I was a wing commander, they were pretty much, you know, uh, you know, the high school programs where I wasn't coaching. So I, I, I think it was kind of a balance of, you know, being there, you know, and oftentimes you both couldn't be there, right, because you go your separate ways. You, yeah. you kind of, you know, we always thought, well, Thursday was a nice night to have kind of a, a get-together and look forward into the next week, so... You know, when we put the kids to bed, maybe at 9 o'clock on a Thursday night, we'd sit down and have a glass of wine and go, well, what's next week look like? You know, so is there any big stuff that needs to be done? Any things at school that we both need to go to? So I think it was prioritization and management. Uh, but it was, you know, making memories and not just money. That's a great way of looking at that. Okay, let's do some quick answers. So I'll remind you of the rules. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I it's hard ask, for me now. You understand, I, right? I know. <laughs> okay. it's, so I'll ask the question. <laughs> And it's a uh, one-word answer, and then I'll go on to the next one. All right? So we do it pretty quick. Wow. You ready? Okay. One-word answer? One-word answer. I'm getting an engineer to do a one-word uh, answer. This okay. is going to be a major feature. So I, I would like, I'm kind of a rehabilitating engineer. I would never say I was totally rehabilitated, but I'm a rehabilitating engineer. A recovering, uh, yeah. rehabilitating. So how many step process is that? Oh, it's at least 12. It's certainly at least 12. All right. Yeah. I don't so, know what step I'm in. I couldn't tell you that, but well, I've, you, I've gotten better through the years. <laughs> if you're an engineer, have you admitted you have a problem? <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm rehabilitating. <laughs> or are you studying the problem to see if it... Okay. Yeah. Superpower you wish you had? Superpower I wish I had? Ah. I can't do a one-word answer on that. So sometimes I would say... Engineer guy, come yeah, on. You look back and, you know, I always coach people, don't look back and wish you'd change things because you never know what the outcome would have been, right? And so sometimes we always, I think, by default, go, oh, the first thing, if I would have looked back, I should have did this. But if I should have did that and I did it, what would the outcome today be? Because if everything's good, should I really have done that? So the what is the superpower you wish you had? Any not, superhero. To not regret. Not regret. Okay. Movie that made you cry. Oh. <laughs> so I'm a, I think kind of a Hallmark junkie when it comes to Christmas time. So, you know, I'll, I'll well up over a good Hallmark movie. Fair enough. Sports figure you most admire. Oh, gosh. So many. Uh, certainly those that set good examples for our youth. And so you can't look too far back to the, the Mantles and the Roots, you know, weren't I mean, they were good baseball players, but they had some terrible habits uh, that I wouldn't want any of our kids to do today. So it seems like the uh, maybe the Michael Jordans of the world or the Kirby Puckets. You know, I think Kirby was a really good example. He was, you know, he played the game hard. He played the game true, and he was an inspiration to those around him. Fair enough. 
one word answer. Should North and <laughs> should North and South Dakota combine? No. Favorite hair band from the eighties. Hair band. Oh my gosh. Um you know, there's so many of them. That's my, my era. And they're all good. I know. I was just, you know, we were drove back from Cleveland, and I was listening to the 80s on 8, so I'll refresh. <laughs> Serious. I'll come back to that one. I'm going to give you just a little while to think Cheap and study trick. it. Is it a Genesis and Phil Collins? A Journey? you got to pick one now. Oh, gosh. Okay. Holland Oats? Uh, they were good, too. Um, okay, I'll go with the... Uh, no. I'll go with... Um, Fleetwood Mac. I gotta go with Fleetwood Mac. Good call. Best beer to pair with pretzels. <laughs> uh, I'm a, my default, I like Bitburger. Okay, fair enough. That's a German beer with a German product. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, speaking of beer and pretzels, there are some. You went to school in in uh, North Dakota. There are some weird laws in North Dakota. I looked up a couple. Oh, no. Yeah. You can't fall asleep with your shoes on in North Dakota. It's illegal. You can't dance with a hat on in North Dakota. And beer and pretzels cannot be served together. I did not know. Oh, you see here. And now it's a good thing you're not living there because if you were drinking beer and eating pretzels together, you'd be breaking the law. You also cannot keep an elk in a sandbox in your own backyard. And your engineer mind is going, well, what size of sandbox would I need for an elk that's approximately... Okay, so let's just say you and Ray Miller were eating pretzels and drinking a smooth Bitburger. Uh, what law would you guys come up with to add to North Dakota's weird laws? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm trying to think of... I didn't even know those laws existed, but... Uh, um, well, let's say... You couldn't have beer and pretzels on the second Tuesday of every month that starts with a F. The beer starts with F? No, the month. The month starts with F. Well, that limits it down quite a bit, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it? Good call. Yeah. All right, so you would change one of the laws to be less restrictive. Oh, I would. Absolutely. I like that thinking. I like that thinking. Mm -hmm. More risk ready there. Absolutely. See what happens when people eat <laughs> pretzels and drink beer together. Weird stuff up there. Um, Where'd you find that, by the way? You know, I carry this little device around with me that has your phone all kinds just of great information. Yeah, yeah, that I can okay. just look it up. I googled that stuff. I, I, so you don't know if it's fact or just somebody's it, hyperbole? It's totally fact. I found it on the internet. Mm -hmm. It's got. It's got to be real. Uh, okay, last question. What do you think the biggest challenge that the military is going to face in the next hundred years? Speaking of our legacy. That's more than one word answer. It, yeah, we're done with the, the short oh. answers. And you failed really poorly <laughs> on all of those anyway. I told you it was going to be hard for me. <laughs> the biggest challenge we are going to face, yeah. uh, I, having done some pretty significant exercises and having worked at the Pentagon, I think it's our pace of adaptability. And so I don't, if we're up against a pure adversary, I don't know if we can adapt as fast as they can to be honest with you. So there's the ends are driven by ways and means. Uh, ways are the way you would you know, do a situation, the method, right, the process. Uh, we worked hard out there just to try to convince the leadership that the only way we can adapt more quickly is to alter the ways. Because the means, just think of the means. 
the process that's in there, the palming cycle, uh, the five years out. I mean, how can you possibly get new equipment to meet an adversary if you have to go through that budgeting cycle? And then this, this one really confounded me. And so I, as I started to think through some of these things, and, and we try to, at the Total Force Continuum, try to be the outlier or you know, almost a pseudo think tank uh, for the greater Air Force. And that's not being pretentious. It's just we felt that was our role. And so, you know, we're going through the, the A8 and the closed-door TS budgeting cycle, and, uh, you know, they're talking about buying tankers in the 2035, 2040, you know, out that far. And, you know, the, and the four stars, you know, quickly equate that, well, 15 years is probably as far as we can go. That's, that's a pretty big stretch. And we're going, yeah, that's a pretty big stretch. The world changes quite radically in 15 yeah. years, and yeah. that undoubtedly is going to. And so... You know, the whole thing, well, we need more tankers, we need more tankers. And so one of the comments that we came up with was, you know, we should really rethink this tanker thing. Um, are we putting all our money into tankers, or should we be looking at synthetic fuels or alternate propulsion systems, or even alternate aircraft that don't require as much fuel? And so really, are we projecting we're going to need that many tankers based on today's need? We should really look at projecting those tankers based on what tomorrow's need will be. And I don't think we're doing that. And so that wasn't a popular thing with AMC by any means. Uh, but it just, when you look at how, you know, ingraded the thought processes are, it's hard for people to break out of that. So when I say, I don't think we'll be able to adapt as quickly unless we can break down some of those tiers and then have people more free thought. Uh, the, under General... Holmes, who later became the ACC commander, uh, we did a freelance Friday where we take a whole Friday from the whole section and just freelance thought. You know, mm -hmm. what if? Wh why are we doing this? What else could we do? You know, those are productive sec uh, sections that were sessions that we would do. And that actually came up, well, do we really need group structures in a wing? And so when you ask yourself, do you really need a group structure in a wing? Or could you just have squadrons reporting to like a staff under the wing commander? So you'd actually have the wing commander have a full staff, you sure. know, like a A1 personnel, A2 intel, A3 operations, A4. You'd have a full staff up here of light colonels uh, that would kind of chair things. So you could do away with some of the rank, and you could do away with another layer of, of uh, leadership, right? Uh, would that make the wing more efficient or less efficient? I don't know who would sign my travel voucher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so adaptability of means. In other words, we solve yeah. problems more quickly and adaptably. We can, we can change the ways yeah. much more quickly. We can alter the ways that we do business uh, based on the threat, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but to actually do the means, you know, the, the, the technology, the resourcing of, of, you know, increasing the force in size or decreasing the force, those are hard things to do. All those means are hard things that we don't do very well, I don't think. Yeah. And if you look at, I always, I think this is a pretty good thing for our, our younger kids to, uh, to understand is that... Uh, you know, the Army and Marines kind of work under this basic philosophy where their doctrinal approach is to, you know, see and adapt, right? They see what the adversary is going to do, and then they, they counter it or see and counter. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the coin strategy, counterinsurgency strategy, right? They saw what the adversary was doing in Iraq, and then they made up the coin to take care of it, which was just a reenactment of what they had done in Vietnam. Yeah. So now what the Air Force does is to more look forward and... Uh, try to foresee what the needs of the future are going to be. So the Navy and the Air Force doctrine are more a 
you know, uh, look and and then you know formulate. So it's a quite a bit different doctrinally approach from the Navy and the Air Force compared to the Army and the Marines, right? Uh, so, but that makes us more expensive because we fail more often. And so one of the things that we were going at the, the Pentagon was, you know, it's time to fail fast. Let's just get the failures out of the way as fast as we can so we can get, get to a product that really works. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, it's a different philosophy, but it's a different way of getting to mean, or ways again and not means. So that's where everything you would always kind of, you know, strangulate yourself with was, well, how do we procure these new systems? You know, and the last exercise I did was out in the Pacific against a pure adversary not to be named, but... Uh, you know, that's a, the tyranny of distance there is not a place that we want to fight a war. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it would just be a very, very challenging place to operate. And like on any exercise, you were trying to sample out a certain amount of things to see if that would be the way to do it. And, you know, my brief to the four-star, because I was the Durham Mob 4 and the Director of Mobility Forces and the C4, so I had all the logistics underneath me. And just to try to figure out the supply lines was almost an impossibility. And so what you would end up doing is you wouldn't last very long on the island because you'd run out of equipment, right? And so if you were all organic, you could take and shift those supplies and move them to a different island. But pretty soon you found yourself so far away from the adversary that you were ineffective, right? right? So it's like, how do you adapt that? How do you make you know, new things? So these hypersonics, the missiles, um, you know, is air-to-air -air combat really the way of the future? Or is it hypersonics and is it missile to missile? Can you defend your shores from longer distances? Is the technology such where we can adapt? You know, there was a lot of big thinkers going, well, if we can beam down energy from the satellites, then we can have electric cars all day long because you can get recharged any place. Well, of course. Yeah, so if there's stuff that we can locate above us uh, and then we can operate much more efficiently as well. That's why Space Command is here today. Well, there we go. To try space to protect Force is here now. Space today, Force, right? yeah, is here today. That was the thought. How do you? And Goldfin was not an advocate of that because we're so intricately, intricately tied yeah. that he thought that it would be in jeopardy right now to move them out of the Air Force. But time will tell. Adaptability. I think adaptability. Yeah. We need to be able to adapt much more quickly. I think our youth coming in right now are much, are going to be much better at that than people like you and I. Ever could be, it's, and it's it's good to see the folks that we have coming in right now. Yeah, there's a um, he called it a multi-domain command and control. Now the new it's called joint all-domain command and control, and it's how do you create warriors that can think in all seven dimensions of the of the armed forces. So, mm -hmm. are you wise enough to know what's going on below the sea, on the sea, on the land, airspace, cyber, and the human domain? And it goes to hybrid warfare, uh, the fifth generation warfare. Can you really win the hearts and minds? And what we saw Russia do in, in Ukraine, in essence, right? You try to get in and win the hearts and minds and, and create a dichotomy or an, an, inter, an interior adversarial yeah. con uh, conflict. Uh, some might say that's even going on in the United States right now. Um, and I would say, yes, you are absolutely correct. In fact, I will give you an example. There was, uh, oh, I shared that with you on an earlier, uh, you know, uh, after the. Uh, it was February 12th, somewhere in there, uh, an old retired military individual circulated an email that had no date, no author, and it cited the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, as a source. And uh, it said the U.S. resident deaths in 2018 were such, in 2019 were such, and look, in 2020 there were only 19,000 more than there were in the previous two years. And from having done data analytics for so many years, I went, it would be highly unusual for the CDC to reconcile all the data from 2020 
in, in six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, they just did it at the beginning of April, to be honest with you, and I saw it come out. And it was 375,000 more deaths than the previous two years. And so I, I wrote him back and said, you know, for your integrity, I think it's wise that you, know, you don't pass around things like this. Number one, it's not true. Uh, number two, it could be the bidding of one of our adversaries uh, and just spreading mistruths and trying to create you know, animosity within the greater force of the U.S., us, the population base. And I even went so far to you know, kind of hint to him that I think this is almost another form of fishing, the PHI. It's not after your identity, not after your money. It's after your patriotism. I don't think you as a former military retiree, a former military member and retiree, want to be part of this kind of work. So quit it. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have to be very careful. It goes back to the fact, sources, and opinions. Yeah, yeah. Questioning and, and teaching people how to search for truth. Correct. Is, is uh, it's a hard thing to do, and 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 like I said, I, I think right now we're we're looking at a time where our uh, we have young people coming in that question on so much, and just uh, coaching a little bit to get to that search for truth where where. Right. That is something that is strived uh, by everyone to find. So I think it's healthy. Remember when Simon Sinek came to the wing? Yeah. And he wrote the book. Uh, I saw him you know, talk many, many times. And he really professes, ask the question, why? Yeah. And if you can answer that, then you can make sense out of a lot of things, right? So I think that's probably what we're starting to lose a little bit. And you know, hopefully the youth will bring that back is, why are we doing this? Why is this of value? Uh, why do we need this? Uh, and it goes back to everything that we were doing at the Pentagon. Why do we look at a tanker force for 2035 yeah. uh, that needs to grow from what it is today when we have no idea what the technology is going to align to? And why, why won't we put our money into different, you know, R&D and, and try to build, which we're doing. DARPA's great at that, the Defense Advanced Resource Production Agency. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, that's another interesting thing. The DARPA had, uh, since we've done these medical exercises for so many years, realized that a pandemic was inevitable and we were not prepared to fight it. Right. They had over 10 years of research on this MNRA, uh, mRNA. And uh, so they had gave that all over to the, the pharmaceuticals when this kicked off. So they had a, quite a bit of research. So when people think that, you know, this is really done by Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca and Moderna and, you know, the short time, there was a lot of research behind it that had yeah. been taking place for many, many years. So much more stuff that we could unpack here, but unfortunately, I gotta, I gotta cut us off. Okay. So, General Hazi, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, it's, thank you. It's been good to just sit and be, you know, have a good look at what where we've come from in the past, uh, and kind of throw that into where we're going with as a future stuff that you and I are going to be able to look at and just see happen. When, uh, long after both of us are gone from the wing and, and a little less connected. But mm-hmm. Thank you for taking the time and uh, chatting with me on Beneath the Wing. Very good. Thank you, Chief. Good Pleasure. Time. Join me next time as I have another guest on Beneath the Wing. And uh, thanks for tuning in.